Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everybody. And welcome to episode 283 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam joined by Jill. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, you interviewed a, a former guest slash past friend. So I will let you talk about it because I wasn't in this particular chat. Yes, I got to speak with Fiona Davis um, again. She had previously been on for her second book, The Address, and now her new book, The Masterpiece, um, is out. Um, and I love Fiona. Is this really only her second time on? We talk about her books all the time. All the time. And well, and plus, like... That's why I seriously thought we had already posted this, because... Yeah. And I was like, oh, I never put up that... Interview. Sorry, Fiona. Well, and plus, not only do we talk about her books all the time, and we love her, like, you and I, we talk to her via the our social media handle, but we also talk about it, talk to her, like, personally, because be- we all three of us became buddies when we interviewed her in person, and, yep. and like, we email with her every once in a while, too, and it just, to me, it feels like she's one of those people who's been out a bunch. Nope. This is only your second time on. Oh, well, we'll need to, I literally had to go to our own website and search it just to make sure. <laughs> so I was like, really? This is the only oh. time she's been on? Fiona, still be friends with us, please. We, <laughs> we goofed. Um, so, yeah. So uh, her new book, The Masterpiece, is about an art school that used to exist in Grand Central Terminal, the train station in New York City. Um, like all of her other books, she picks iconic New York landmarks and um, tells dual narratives um, about that place in this uh, particular one. So it's um, there was a time when um, New York was considering tearing down Grand Central um, or Grand Central was just like not a really good place to go. Like yeah. Nobody wanted to go to Grand mm-hmm. Central. And um, but then there's also this other narrative from the past about um, an art school and Set in like the 1920s, which is all I needed to know. I was like, "Oh, 1920s New York, okay, <laughs> yeah. just my arm." Which is exactly why Fiona is <laughs> so in your wheelhouse. I'm like, great. No, I feel I like <laughs> um, our friends at the Reading Glasses podcast does this thing. They do this thing all the time where they have readers and listeners send in their um, reading wheelhouse, where they'll explain like, "I'm a fan of." A futuristic science fiction that involves baseball, like really specific. Thing. And I just feel like one of your wheelhouses is just like Fiona Davis book. It's not even. I mean, well, yeah. I think it's just like New York City historical fiction. Exactly. Yeah, it's so. There's good. just something about New York City. Oh yeah, it's a wonderful place. Um, Could never live there, but I like reading about it. Exactly. I enjoy visiting there, but then I'm also like, you know what else I like? Napping sometimes, <laughs> like without. Just all the sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at ProBookNerds. You can vi- visit our website, ProfessionalBookNerds.com. Uh, you can go on ProfessionalBookNerds.com and find our Viber community, which is where people chat with each other all about books and chat with us. It's a lot of fun. And if you haven't started your 30 day challenge, you should do that as well. We have our 30 day book challenge going on. Really, just in perpetuity. We're going to be doing it throughout November, but 
you can do it whenever you want to start. So uh, anything else you think people should know about? Well, before we started recording, we are talking about the fact that Fiona, um, just this week or last week at this point, um, had released the – there's a cover uh, reveal for her next book. So you should go look for that. I think we talk about it closer to the end. Um, I think I asked her what she's working on. So I don't want to spoil it for you, but you can go look for it. Yeah. It's a fabulous cover. As all, all of hers are. Yeah, it is really fabulous. I don't know who does her cover work, but. It's really good. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's about it. I am jealous that I wasn't on this chat, but that's okay. So I hope you guys enjoyed Jill's conversation with Fiona Davis on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Jill and with me today is Fiona Davis, best-selling author of New York City-inspired historical fiction including The Dollhouse and The Address. Her latest book, The Masterpiece, is out August 7th and, and is an August Library Reads pick. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again today. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> so can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to The Masterpiece? Sure. So the masterpiece takes place at Grand Central Terminal, um, and it takes place in an actual art school that existed there in the 1920s called the Grand Central School of Art. It was co-founded by John Singer Sargent, was there for 20 years and had 900 students a year. And so part of the book is set there from the point of view of one of the faculty members, who's an illustrator named Clara Darden. And she's trying really hard to make her way in what is very much a man's world. Um, and she's kind of caught between the, the heady days of, of the roaring 20s and the oncoming depths of the Depression. So that's half the book. The other half is set in the 1970s, and that's from the point of view of a down-on-her-luck um, former Upper East Side socialite who has to take a job in the information booth in the center of the Grand Concourse as a clerk. And um, her first day on the job, she stumbles into an abandoned art school and eventually finds a painting there and starts looking into its provenance. Is it valuable? Who painted it? And what happened to the, the painter who, who did so, who mysteriously disappeared? And so it kind of goes back and forth in time and then also gets uh, the Virginia in the 70s gets caught up in the fight to save Grand Central because it was under threat by developers. Um, and so the title really refers to not only the artwork that's found, which is whether or not it's a masterpiece, but also Grand Central. Is it a masterpiece? Should it be destroyed and replaced with a skyscraper? Or should it be renovated and, and you know, fixed up? How did you come across this story of the art school at Grand Central? You know, I first, um, I took a tour of Grand Central and it was fantastic. We went up to the catwalks by the arched windows and way, way down below the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. It was incredible. But even then, the, the art school was not mentioned. And it wasn't until I was going through some research books on the terminal that they mentioned it. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, yes, that's where this book should be set. So you had the idea to set it in Grand Central before you sort of knew the historical aspect I was looking into it. I wasn't sure because, you know, my first two books are set in residences where mm -hmm. people live. 
So the first one was the Barbizon Hotel for Women. The second was the Dakota. And so I really wasn't sure if the terminal would work since, after all, it's just a transportation hub. But it was the research that led me to the school. And the minute I saw that, I thought, all right, I'm intrigued. And that's a rabbit hole. I'll be happy to go down. Yeah, I I know when I had read the book, it just sort of blew my mind that there was an art school in Grand Central Terminal. I just, I I mean, it's so, it just sort of blew my mind. It's it's shocking, and and the idea that no one knows of it. I remember reading an article in the New York Times from the twenties that described the students in formal dress rushing across the concourse on their way to a masquerade ball that the school held every May, and just the image was so delightful it really ignited my imagination. So that kind of leads me to my next question about your research. So how much fun was it to research New York City in the nineteen twenties? <laughs> Oh, it was so great. (laughs) It's an incredible time. And what's fun is capturing, you know, an art world and and the city that's between, you know, these crazy days of the Roaring Twenties and then knowing what's coming down the pike, but knowing Mm -hmm. that the characters don't know it and that the Depression will be upending everything that they've, you know, fought for and and believe in. And so that was, it's amazing to capture a time period where the contrasts were so stark. And I think not just the contrast between the 1920s and the 1930s, but I think the 1920s and the 1970s, especially in terms of what Grand Central was like at that time. You know, you think of the 1920s in New York City, it's very opulent and grand. And then you read, you know, your descriptions of what the terminal was like in the 1970s. And it's so sad. Yeah. Oh, that's what really struck me. I found a a National Geographic documentary on the terminal that showed, you know, it in the 1970s where it was just so dark because years of cigarette smoke had just darkened all the the beautiful um, ceiling and all Mm -hmm. the marble. It was really dangerous. You know, if you wanted to catch a train, you got in and out as fast as you could because it was full of homeless and, and drug dealers. And it wasn't a place you lingered. And it was so much fun to go back and forth in time, especially as my character Virginia in the 70s starts seeing the beauty of the terminal underneath mm-hmm. all of the decay and and becomes, you know, caught up in the fight to save it. If you go into Grand Central now and look up, there's this beautiful aquamarine ceiling with the constellations. And in the northwest corner, there's a small rectangle that's pitch black. And they left that when they were cleaning it. They left the original, you know, what it looked like in the 70s, which really was pitch black, um, to show people how far the terminal came and then how far it had to go to get fixed. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, it's, there's so many, there's so many wonderful things about it. And, and that really show how the city changed over time because the city in the 20s was going gangbusters. In the 1970s, New York City was almost bankrupt. Right. And that was part of the reason why it was um, the threat of, of you know, um, knocking down Grand Central was so imminent was because the city had no money to fight back against the developers who had the landmark status revoked. I think it's, you know, one of the things I like so much about your books is is you take this iconic building in the city and kind of examine it um, from two different eras. And reading the masterpiece, it 
it struck me like, can you imagine if they actually tore it down? If they had torn down Grand Central and it didn't exist today? And, and exactly, you know what you can uh, you can relate that to is in the 1960s, Penn Station mm. was a beautiful cathedral of glass and cast iron, and it was torn down and they sunk the train station below Madison Square Garden. But people just were were shocked that such a beautiful building could be could just be knocked down, and it happened very quickly. It caught a lot of people by surprise, and so in fact, you know, we are missing this beautiful landmark. Um, for that exact reason. And I think that's why Grand Central, the fight to save it, had a better result because they could look back less than a decade and see, wow, if we, if we don't do something, look what can happen. Right. So what was your research process like for researching information on Grand Central? Because I imagine, I mean, does the terminal have an archive of any kind? You know, um, I don't think the terminal does, but I went to Columbia's Avery Library, which is an architecture library, mm. and there I could pour through elevations and floor plans and black and white photos from when it first opened in 1913. And, um, and I interviewed architectural historians about the importance of the building and, and got some wonderful ideas from them. And also there's a, an organization called the Municipal Arts Society. And they, in fact, were crucial to helping to save it in the 70s. And they have all the court transcripts from when they were going to court to save it. They have old um, flyers from the demonstrations that were organized um, to try and galvanize the city to fight back. And so there there are all these um, clues hidden about. I just had to figure out where to find them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, you talk about how the story from the 1920s is a, a woman artist um, trying to sort of make a life for herself in what is very much a man's world. Was that character of Clara based on anyone in particular from the real history of Grand Central and the art school? It sure was. It was based on the first female faculty member at the Grand Central School of Art. Her name was Helen Dryden, and she was an illustrator who came to New York ended up doing over 90 covers for Vogue magazine that are exquisite. And then she went on to do costume design for Broadway, and she that wasn't enough, so she went on to do industrial design, which was a real man's world, mm -hmm. and then she disappeared. And so for me, that was her, that was such a wonderful way to create my character, Clara, who was inspired by her, um, of this woman who wouldn't take no for an answer, um, and the question of what happened to her, and, and there's not a lot of, of information about her out there, um, although there's starting to be more now, and she really deserves a place in history because she was incredible. Yeah, those Vogue covers from that period of time are just amazing. They are. You know, they're, they're, she, Helen Dryden did these watercolors, and they're women with elongated necks, and if they're wearing a fur coat, it's as if they're being devoured by the fur coat, and they're walking a, a spotted greyhound. They're just so elegant and gorgeous. Now that I think about it, I came across many, many, many years ago, one in particular Vogue cover from the 1920s that fits that description. I'm going to have to actually go back and see if that was one of hers. That had yeah. not occurred to me before. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. If you And if you Google Helen Dryden and Vogue covers, you'll see a whole bunch of them, and I bet you you'll find it. Because it is. It's, once you've seen one Helen Dryden, you'll you'll know it. <laughs> um, so I think 
one of the things I enjoyed about um, the book for Clara is the sort of the juxtaposition between how her art is viewed in this school and then she has this male colleague who, you know, she's doing these illustrations that are slightly more commercial and he just sort of poo-poos that. And <laughs> the idea of he doesn't think her work is difficult and there's this really wonderful scene between the two of them where they kind of challenge each other to paint each other's style of art. And I don't want to like spoil it for anybody, but I really love that entire scene, <laughs> just how oh, it works out. So, <laughs> I'm so glad, you know, for part of the research, I, I interviewed an illustrator and he kind of explained what that was like, that there's this dynamic between, well, if you're a painter, then you're considered more important than an illustrator who works for a client and it's a real question in the art world as mm-hmm. to you know what is what is legit and what is not and so yeah it was so fun to do that especially because the two characters are really hot-headed yes <laughs> and so there's a there's an automatic conflict and, and clash built in right there yes agreed no that's true I mean I think that is true for any sort of artistic endeavor um this idea yeah. of kind of selling out, so to speak, if you are doing art for more than just the sake of art, but if you have clients or it is commercial. And that is something I think we all still kind of struggle with who work in the arts. I think you're right. And even if you see it in, in acting or if you do commercials, that would be, you know, commercial. But if you do Broadway theater, then you're con- that's actually called legit, legitimate right. work. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. There's parallels all over the place. So I, I always wonder, what is it about New York for you that makes it so magical as a place for all of your books? You know, I, I would have to say, I would go back all the way to when I was a kid and we would travel back to England every few years to visit all our relatives because my parents are both British. And we'd travel around, and to keep my brother and me from killing each other in the car, we'd stop at ruins and castles and and these grand estates. And I, I just couldn't believe how old everything was, that the idea that anything less than 400 years old is considered pretty recent there. Um, and so I moved to New York in my 20s, and I've been there for 30 years now. And so I've watched the city skyline change. And there's part of me that thinks of the nostalgia of, oh, in the 80s, that was there. Mm. Or, you know, oh, in the 90s. And so I have this built-in sense of how the the cityscape is changing. And I think in my books, I want to try and capture some of that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and save it in a way um, so that people can see changes over time and ask the same question. Are they, is it a good change or is it not a good one? And, um, and so I think that's where it all comes from. Do you keep a sort of a running list of buildings that you think would make for interesting settings? Or do you just sort of let them come to you with each book? You know, I am so not a multi multitasker. So I can only work on one book at a time. And when I'm in that book, that's all I'm doing. But I find that, you know, my schedule is I do about a book a year. So by October, November, I'm winding down on edits for the book that will be coming out in August. And usually right around then, if I just keep an open mind, Mm. something clicks in. (laughs) And so far, that's worked. So we're three in a row, and it's been fine. And the fourth one's on its way. 
So I'm, I'm just kind of, I, I figure it'll come to me when it's the right time. Um, and so, no, I'm not keeping a list, but there are so many buildings. It's just, um, you know, there's so much to choose from. It's, it's wonderful. So can you tell us anything about the fourth book? Sure. So it'll be coming out this time next year. It's set at the Chelsea Hotel. And that is a, a building that was been around since the 1800s. And it's just the home to poets and playwrights and painters. And it's a real eccentric cast of characters and has been for years. So Bob Dylan lived there. Dylan Thomas died there. It's, um, it's really incredible. And that's from, it takes place in the 1950s and then in the late 60s. Hmm. And from the point of view of two women, one's a playwright, one's an actress, who are working their way through but um, are caught up in the McCarthy era. Oh. And okay. so, it, yeah, yeah. So it's been a lot of fun to research and write. And it's a, it's a fun cast of characters to work with. That sounds good. I'm, I'm already looking forward to it next year. <laughs> I know that you have a history in theater and Broadway. There's so many theaters there in New York. I have to, of course, ask if, if you've ever considered setting a book at one of the theaters. Well, actually, because the next book really partly is because a lot of, of course, yeah, the, a lot of the, um, story takes place at the Biltmore Theater. Okay. Yeah, where they're trying to put on a Broadway show. And the Biltmore was interesting because it was this big, crazy, wonderful theater, and then it fell into ruin. And then was Manhattan Theater Company, Manhattan Theater Club came in and um, restored it. And so now it's a big, beautiful theater today. So I was able to get a, a lovely tour um, of that and really get right backstage and underneath the stage and hopefully bring that theater to life. So you're going to like that part of it, I promise. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Um, so I'm trying to think what else I have. I just, I, I will be fully honest. I didn't come in with any prepared questions because I'm like, we'll just chat. It'll be great. Oh, totally <laughs> fine with me. I love that. That's, I like that even better. Definitely. Um, so I, I just, no, I think we're good. Um, I just wanted to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast again. Um, oh, my pleasure. I, Anytime. I love listening to it. You guys, you, you guys do it well. Thank you. I, I, right now I really want to ask a million questions about your new book, but then we won't be able to have you back on, you know, next year. So we'll keep it, we'll keep it hidden. Yes. For now. Um, so I guess the one, you know, last takeaway is always, what do you hope readers take away from reading the masterpiece? Oh, such a good question. I hope that as they wander around their city or their town, they'll look at buildings that might seem like they're, you know, old or crumbling or past their prime and wonder what happened inside and wonder what lives and what conflicts and what dramas played out there and possibly see it in a new light and, you know, consider saving their historic buildings instead of raising them and putting up skyscrapers. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, Fiona. Wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.